dusk on November 10th, 1938, in heavy snowfall, the last train to leave the Wrangell Mountains approached the Copper River. The steam locomotive pulled two combine cars with people and baggage and a string of flat cars bearing salvageable hoists, compressors, and machine shop tools. The train hauled no ore. Handbrakes were applied as the train descended the Katsina Bluff, the steepest grade on the entire railroad to the coast. Across the river waited the little town of Chitna, where the last train stopped for the night and switched crews. The next morning, the train continued south via the trestles in the Copper River Canyon to the steamship docks at Cordoba. Families in Kennecott only had one day to pack. The snowstorm forced the company's hand. The small depot by the concentration mill was disappearing under white as the passengers assembled. So begins Tom Kazaya's new book, Cold Mountain Path. And so begins the chronicle of the ghost town decades of McCarthy, Kennecott, Alaska, a new book published by Porphyry Press, which is also located in the McCarthy, Kennecott community and may be the world's most remote publisher. Welcome to The End of the Road, a podcast brought to you by the Wrangell Mountain Center with a generous grant from the Alaska State Council on the Arts and from our supporters in Alaska and around the globe. We thank you. I'm Michelle McAfee. And I'm John Erdman, Executive Director of the Wrangell Mountain Center. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to connecting people with wild lands through art, science, and education. Tom Kazaya's new book speaks to the characters, conditions, and circumstances that helped form the Wrangell Mountain Center and shaped the contemporary culture of our McCarthy Kennecott community out here at the end of the road. Our unique mountain community is on the very edge of the wilderness. Yet there was a time, only decades ago, when McCarthy was a ghost town in the wilderness. A time before cell phones or any phones at all. A ghost town connected only by plane to the outside world. The End of the Road is the name of our podcast, but Tom Kazaya's new book, Cold Mountain Path, chronicles a time before there was a road connecting McCarthy to the outside. I sat down with Tom in McCarthy to talk about the book and his writing process. We sipped coffee and conversed at the old hardware store on the Wrangell Mountain Center campus. So the book starts with the last train leaving and sort of accounting for the end of Kennecott, as opposed to the the heroic narrative of the beginning, the building of the railroad and the discovery of the mines. Here's the back end of capitalism. I mean, and the, the metaphorical ties to the Alaska's oil age and the pipeline development and what's going to happen when the oil runs out and, you know, everything shuts down. The period I'm writing about, a lot of it is during that pipeline boom in the rest of Alaska. And you can sort of see it reflected in the Kennecott history and in the people in McCarthy at that time who were in some sense coming here to flee the changes that were happening in the rest of Alaska. This is not the first book that Tom Kazaya has written, set in the Wrangles. Some of the research and writing for Cold Mountain Path was originally for Tom's previous book, Pilgrim's Wilderness, a true story of faith and madness on the Alaska frontier. 
It was a national bestseller with incredible plot twists and sinister family secrets. Tom's new book, Cold Mountain Path, is a bit closer to home. It takes us back in time, chronicling incredible stories from the lost years, 1938 to 1983, stories that were on the verge of disappearing in the shuffle of time. When I got the first draft of the manuscript done, I realized that the focus of the story really had to be on the family and the children escaping their father. And so a lot of the material that I had about the frontier days in McCarthy ended up getting jettisoned. About that whole period of the lost decades, as I started to think of it, was um, sort of set aside or summarized in a page or two. So it was fun to read the lost chapters about the lost decades when I was out here where there was an audience that would actually be very interested in that period, and the response was so great. You know, the museum wanted to get copies of that chapter just to keep on hand, and I thought, well, why don't I just expand them a little bit, and we'll do a little fundraising book for the museum. And then I sort of tumbled down the rabbit hole. In our interview, Tom also spoke about what he called a slight missionary sense of wanting to preserve the stories. But there's a big difference between simply expanding a chapter from a prior book and dedicating years of your life to writing a book on those lost years with very little to go on other than simply conducting countless interviews with locals who lived it. I was curious about what motivated Tom to invest years of his life to the endeavor. What kept him going after he tumbled down the rabbit hole? People who remembered that period or were around for that realized that the stories were about to be gone if they didn't get written down. Very little of it was written, although I did find little strands here and there which were very helpful to my research. And it, you know, went on for several years of digging and talking to people, and it kind of got out of control for a while. Finally, we got the lost decades, I think, in between covers. Tom so brilliantly captured these stories in a way that preserves the nuances and personalities of the characters and context. But for Tom, the quest to capture these stories is deeper. It isn't just about preserving the past. It's about how we process the past, and especially about processing the tragic loss of the community from the 1983 mass shootings. I felt like by writing the book and capturing that time and sort of preserving it, then it's easier to let it go, too. Maybe that's a, a writer's way of dealing with life. It becomes a kind of just unresolved anxiety to have this past in all its many strands just floating around in the air and feel it disappearing as the people involved and several of the people who I interviewed for this book are already gone now. It seemed like it was now or never to get that and then once you get that then you can sort of find a way to let it go. For 30 years, the open river at Chetna had complicated access to McCarthy. In winter, ice could support a bulldozer. During freeze-up in the fall, when the river was full of fast-moving slush ice, there was no good way to cross. That was a situation confronting Jim Edwards one autumn after traveling 60 miles overland from McCarthy. He had a dental problem 
that the files in his toolbox couldn't fix. Arriving late in the day, he found the Copper River freezing up sooner than expected. There was too much moving ice for a boat. He looked up, a quarter mile of steel cable left by the railroad's long decommissioned engine-driven tram was suspended above the flows. Edwards climbed the abandoned tower on the McCarthy side. He looped a heavy chain over the cable, rigged a seat harness on a plank of wood, pulled on leather gloves and started across. To move forward, he had to lift his weight with one arm and push the chain forward with the other. It was almost easy at first, sliding downhill. But halfway across the river, he saw that he had underestimated the difficulty of the climb. He could move only an inch or two on each shove. It grew dark, the temperature sank, and his strength drained away. He did not want to be remembered as the dead fool dangling above the Copper River. When he reached the opposite tower, he collapsed on the platform, his gloves worn through, his jacket shredded. He slept the, through the cold night, and his body was black and blue for days. That was from Tom's book, a reading by Jim's son, Steve Edwards. Only one of many harrowing adventures that Jim Edwards undertook. Jim passed away in 2016, but when I sat down with Steve recently, Steve spoke about how his dad was motivated to be in the Wrangles because of the challenges, not in spite of them. Jim Edwards himself put a fine point on it when he said, if it's easy to get here, then the place won't exist. This was not an uncommon sentiment among those who made a home in the Kennecott-McCarthy area during the lost years. Jim's challenges, his way of life, and his way of speaking about it came to epitomize the lost years, and Jim's life became central to Cold Mountain Path. It's amazing, but even in a ghost town, you can't write about every feud and every character and every funny thing that happened. So I really tried to make it easy enough for the reader to get through by finding some main storylines to carry the story. And the key to it all, I think, was to tell the story of Jim Edwards, the early arrival here, the homesteader. He came in 1953. So when he got here as a young man, he was able to get to know the old timers who were still around, who had stayed when the train left and when Kennecott closed down. So he was kind of the living link to that past. And he was here all the way until he died in 2016. So certainly up through 1983, he was one of the most prominent figures in the community. He and his wife, Maxine, and Maxine was killed in the 1983 shootings. And so he sort of certainly provided a tie to that part of the story as well. And I had gotten to know Jim through my time out here and we corresponded. I really enjoyed him. And, you know, he, he kind of became a local celebrity here in his later years. He would once a year give a slideshow here at the hardware store. And there'd be people spilling out into the streets trying to get in to see his slides and hear his stories. And, you know, that was a clue how that period really has a lot of interest locally. And he was a good storyteller, too. So what really suddenly unlocked the story you know he died in 2016 and i did a profile of him for the adn about that period and that sort of helped focus my attention so that wow this could be the way i could focus this book is on sort of his his life here just to give the reader some narrative line to hold on to 
There are folks in McCarthy and Kennecott today who reside here year-round, but many of today's residents are here only in the summer, earning a livelihood in the summer months and then seeking greener pastures and reliable electrical grids for the winter. But back in Jim Edwards' time, it was the opposite. Jim, his wife Maxine, and others would find summer work across Alaska, but then return to settle into McCarthy for the long winter. Longer back then, before climate change began to shorten the winter season. This was back when there was no road into McCarthy. A winter life in McCarthy was a challenge that few could long endure. And most left. Yeah. <laughs> as, as Jim Edwards pointed out repeatedly and, and with a faint smile of satisfaction as he said it, you know, it's tough out here and people don't get it. And once they get it, they leave. And the few who remain are, you know, kind of get to reap the benefits of being here. We also talked to Tom about people who were here before the railroad was built or before any railroads were built. The Atna people are a culture that has had an intimate relationship with this place for thousands of years. While reading an essay by Margot Higgins, I encountered a quote from one white hunter speaking of his relationship with the Atna during the lost years. And he said that the Atna were, quote, probably some of the toughest people on the planet. I never encountered anyone as tough as those people. Um, that's, that was part of the challenge as a writer, you know, to you know, try to get outside of my white guy's head um, and look at what's going on here from a lot of different perspectives. Not because it's politically correct, but because it's interesting and, and you know, informs what was really happening. Mm. because it was an important part of the story, you know, just like, you know, George Flowers, the one black man in the whole valley, you know, he sort of gives a very different perspective on the, on what's going on and, and, you know, try to figure out how to convey some of the women's experiences like Bonnie's and others. I'm reading from Tom's book, quote, the valley was once home to people associated with Atna chief Nikolai, who maintained a sheep hunting camp on the middle Nizina at the mouth of Dan Creek and a winter camp on the upper Chitna at the mouth of the Kiagna River. There was never a central village because the country was lean and hungry, so the Atna had to keep moving around. After the death of Nikolai and construction of the railroad, outlying sites were abandoned. Western communities rarely gave much thought to the absence of their indigenous antecedents. And so it was here with the Valley's first ghosts. Well, that's in the context of the ghost story narrative. I will I have to hasten to make that point because it's a very sort of controversial thing to say about a Native American people, that they vanished because clearly the Adna did not vanish. Um, they were the Valley's ghosts, but they were... Just because they were forced out and not sort of cut into the copper mining era, nor were they cut into the conservation era. They were, in the big sense, you know, one of the land claims corporations and, and did get their portion of acreage. But this valley, which I'm the chronicler of this history of this valley up here, you know, they were cut out of here. 
From the time copper was spotted in the area in 1900 and beyond, the Atna people have not been eligible to stake a claim on the ancestral land they resided on and preserved for millennia. When the railroads cut through the Wrangles, the Atna endured hardship with the loss of animals to hunt for food. And they were never compensated for the use of their lands, which were mined for over 100 million in profits, the equivalent of approximately $1.5 billion today. The regulatory exclusion of Atna from lands they occupied and called home leaves Atna history largely outside the scope of Cold Mountain Path. But according to Tom, there's further work to be done on Atna history, if it can be written, and if the people who hold that story are willing to share it. He pointed us to a book published in 2018 by Atna Incorporated, written by William Simeon, called Atna, The People and Their History. In the present day, our McCarthy Kennecott community is almost exclusively white and a relative newcomer at that. It makes me wonder, what is our relationship to our past when that past involves displacing people? How does the story of Atna displacement from our recent past inform and shape the way we think about our community in the present? These are questions for further exploration. story, you know, it's it's like pure Alaskana, the the stuff that I was writing, you know, it was like if the Kennecott deposits were 70% pure copper, this is 70% pure Alaskana, you know, it's just so rich. Um, So I think there's a second audience, you know, that would sort of go for it at that level. But beyond that, I tried to think about what is a ghost town and what does it represent in sort of American history and American society? And to try to use that as a unifying theme because to me it's kind of a metaphor for the past you know the question is how do you leave the past behind in that sense it's kind of a personal story for each reader and a ghost town there's this tourist appeal or this traveler's appeal to come to a ghost town and sort of ponder the enigma of the ruins you know and ask yourself is this place where we've been or is this where we're going you know everybody who goes to a ghost town i think ends up unpacking their own life story their own obsessions the ghost town is in our past and given a long enough timeline it's also in our future living and walking amongst the wreckage of the mining era Barely a hundred years ago, we can feel the fragility of it all. And for those of us living on the regenerating terrain of glacial retreats and redirected riverbeds, the dynamic landscapes also speak to the fleeting, ever-evolving nature of our lives. We will explore this impermanence more in part two of our interview with Tom. Join us in part two, where Tom takes us into Amy Ashenden's story and the dark past of the 1983 shooting in our community. Amy, as a student of Buddhism, I mean, she was all about impermanence. And 
This landscape, more than any, just speaks to impermanence. Not only the fading of the old buildings, but the changing world itself in front of us, the dynamism of the mountains. And she recognized all that, so that's why sort of thinking about looking at the world through her story at that point gives us a way to look at the past and learn how to let go of it, not cling to it too tightly. You can go to wrangles.org, that's wrangles with two L's, to listen to more episodes from our podcast. At our website, you can also help support us financially. You can sign up for our monthly e-newsletter, and you can check out the programs that we operate here in McCarthy during the summer. And visit our Facebook and Instagram pages to stay up to date on Wrangle Mountain Center happenings. Get a flavor of the sights and scenes that brought folks like Jim Edwards here and inspired them to make their home in this great state and in the Wrangell Mountains. I'm your host, John Erdman, episode writer, producer, and executive director of the Wrangell Mountains Center. And I'm your host, Michelle McAfee, episode writer and audio engineer. We also want to acknowledge Peter Bradley, writer and audio editor for this episode, Aaron McKinstry for logistical support and coordination. And thanks to Steve Edwards for the reading and David Jacob Strain for mastering this podcast. Special thanks to the Alaska State Council on the Arts and to our supporters far and wide. And we are especially appreciative to Tom Kazaya, as well as to Jeremy Pataki and Porphyry Press for the opportunity to sit down with Tom. And thank you for joining us at the end of the road. <laughs>